You can turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37. So we're coming through the book of Genesis together. And we're in chapter 37, verse 12 through 36 this morning. Let's take time to pray together and just ask the Lord to help us to do what we just sang, which is to adore Christ. Let us adore Him. Let's ask the Lord to help us do that. Father, we are very aware of so many things in this world and so many things in our hearts that keep us from giving, us the, giving you the glory due your name. Our own sin, our own lukewarmness, sin in this world, God, in our own hearts. And God, we long for that day. We long for that day. When we feast in the house of Zion, Lord, and we sing praises to you with no hindrance at all. When the lukewarm heart is done away with forever. God, we long for that day. Because you're worthy. You've revealed to us how worthy you are, Lord Jesus, of all adoration and all praise. Worthy is our God. Mighty and mighty indeed. Full of compassion. Lord, there's none like you. God, we long for that day when there's no hindrance in our own hearts. But God, we ask you today that you would give us a glimpse of that. Let us taste it, Lord. As your word says, let us taste and see that you are good. As we meditate on your word, show us Christ. And just give us, give us a taste of it. Give us a glimpse of what it's like to worship you in heaven. When all sin is removed and all hindrances are, are done away with. Give us a glimpse of it in your word this morning. We're your people. And our desire is to worship you. We commit this time to you, Lord. Thank you so much for your word. God, we'd have been lost without it. We'd have been confused, and we'd know nothing of you, Lord Jesus. But you gave us your word. Thank you so much. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the beloved and favored son of his father. The one who was promised to rule and to reign on a massive scale. But first, he was humiliated to the lowest place. And then he would be exalted to the highest place. Humiliated to the lowest place. The lowest place, even the place of a bondservant, a slave. And then exalted to the highest place at the right hand of the majesty. Who am I talking about right now? Anybody know? I could be talking about Jesus. It definitely describes him. 
Or I could be talking about Joseph, because it describes him as well. So it could be Joseph. Joseph has been put, be put before us in this chapter, Genesis 37, as the beloved and favored son of his father. Now it's proven with his coat of many colors, right? Joseph was promised, and as we saw last week, he was promised to rule and to reign on a massive scale through those two dreams, which are actually one, which, are the, which was the word of God to him. But first, Joseph must experience great, great humiliation, which is what we're going to begin to look at this morning. Great, the, great, the beginning of the great humiliation of Joseph. But then eventually, Joseph will be highly exalted to the right hand of that majesty in Egypt. So it could be talking about Joseph, and obviously, it also could be talking about Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is the beloved and favored son of his father. John 3, 16 and 17, God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And verse 17 says he sent his son into the world. He's a favored and beloved one of his father. Jesus also was promised to rule and to reign on a massive scale. We see that all through the Old Testament. We read Psalm 2 last week. Behold, I set my king on my holy hill in Zion. He'll save people from all nations and crack knees from all nations. He'll rule and reign on a massive scale. But first, Jesus faced great humiliation and then great exaltation. Now I want to just hold your place in Genesis and go to Philippians chapter 2. Hold your spot in Genesis and go to Philippians chapter 2. I want us to be reminded of the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11, it shows us, shows us Jesus' seven steps into humiliation and then his seven steps into exaltation. Start with me. Let's read together starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God. So here's this man who is God, son of God, favored of his father, promised to rule and reign. Step one of his humiliation. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't cling to it, but rather, number two, but emptied himself. He stepped down from glory. He emptied himself. Number three, taking the form of a servant. Like Joseph sold into slavery, he comes in the form of a slave. Do you remember him there putting on those slave, slave clothes and washing his disciples' feet? Number four, born in the likeness of men. That God Almighty would take on flesh? That He would humble Himself and become a man? And being found in Him in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient. Number five, the one who, to, whom, to whom belongs all obedience becomes the obedient one to His Father. 
Number six, it says, to the point of death. The life giver experienced life going out of his body. He experienced death that sinful humans deserve. And it says, number seven, even death on a cross, not just any death. He experienced the most humiliating death a man could experience. He was crucified. Why such a humiliating death? To help us remember what's behind the scenes. He didn't just die any normal death. He died the most humiliating death. Why? So we would remember that behind the scenes, something's happening in the death of Jesus Christ. He's being crucified for sinners. Our sin's being laid upon Him, and He's absorbing God's wrath. This is Christ's humiliation. What about His seven steps of exaltation? Keep going. Therefore, God has, number one, highly exalted Him, this man, Christ Jesus, and has bestowed on Him, number two, the name that is above every name, exalted His name above all. Number three, so that, at the, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. His followers, not his followers, doesn't matter. Every knee will bow. He will be exalted. It's neat how this points back to Joseph as well. Let me read this to you. In Genesis 41, after Joseph's, Joseph's exaltation, it says in chapter 41, verse 41, listen to this. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And listen to this. And he made him ride in his chariot and they called out before him, Bow the knee before all of Egypt. Bow the knee. And this is the third step in Philippians 2 of Jesus' exaltation. Every knee will bow. It goes on, number four, in heaven. He will have the allegiance of all of heaven. Number five, on earth. He will have the allegiance of all of earth. Number six, under the earth. All under the earth. He'll have their allegiance. Number seven, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will have the allegiance of every single tongue. And they'll speak of his lordship and they'll sing his praise. This is Jesus' humiliation and Jesus' exaltation that's foreshadowed in the life of Joseph. So back to Genesis 37. Why does Joseph's life foreshadow Jesus' life? What's the point? Why does he do that? And I want you to understand, this really, it highlights the extent of God's control, his sovereign control. Think about it. Does God know what's going to happen in the end? Absolutely he knows. Isaiah 46.10 says that he declares the end from the beginning. He knows all things. But it's more than that. Will God, will God perform all of his purposes and all of his promises? Will he, will he fulfill it all? Absolutely he will. That same verse says, my counsel shall stand. I will do all my, all my pleasure. 
But listen, it's even more than that. Not only does he know the end, not only does his, will all his promises stand as true, but even from here to there, from past to the future, everything in between, he's guiding circumstances and molding people in such a way that even people's lives foreshadow what he's about to do. That's a sovereign God who's in control. Beautiful, sovereign God who's in control. You think about an author. An author's writing a book and he, wherever he begins and the idea that he has, and he begins to form characters and write certain things into their stories. And all along, the author of that book knows what's coming in the end. And he's writing it here to, to, to say something about what's coming at the end of his book. Listen, our God is like that, but in real history. He's writing a story with this man's life, with Joseph's life. So I want us to read this passage, Genesis 37. Let's read it together, verse 12. We're going to read all the way to verse 36. Lean in and hear God's word. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me please where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they've gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we'll see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness and do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe and the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. 
When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Let's take this, this part of Joseph's story, let's take it in three parts. Number one, the beginning of Joseph's humiliation. That's what this is. This is the very beginning of Joseph's humiliation. It's a very sad story, please. I know you've heard it before, but don't be desensitized to the horror of what's found in what we just read. This is a sad, sad story. This is stuff nightmares are made of, and I want us to just... Take a moment to try to get the plain sense of what's here. This is the beginning of Joseph's humiliation. So let's remember some things in the context. So verse 1 through 11, where we were this past Sunday, we see that Joseph is a 17-year-old teenager. He's beloved and favored son of Jacob. He's got that robe of many colors that sets him apart as this favored son. He's hated by his brothers. They're full of jealousy, as we learned last week. But he's also got this promise from God. Remember, the promise came in the form of two dreams. And those two dreams are one. And in these dreams, every, I mean, sun, moon, and stars are bowing down to him. These promises to Joseph that one day he's going to rule and reign on a massive scale. And we see that in this context. So what's the trajectory of Joseph's life? He's going to rule and reign on a massive scale. Now, what what do his brothers think about that? They hate it, full of jealousy. What does his dad, Jacob, think about that? Well, we know at the end of verse 11, it says, His father kept this saying in mind. So he did rebuke his son, but he's considering it. Keeps his saying in mind. And what does Joseph think about these dreams, this word from God that he's going to rule and reign. What does Joseph think about it? He seems to be a man of faith. He's trusting God that what God has said will certainly come to pass. And so that brings us to our verses. And so verse 12 through 17, I'm not going to read it again for the sake of time. But verse 12 through 17, we see that Joseph is sent to his brothers. Joseph is sent to his brothers. His brothers are supposed to be shepherding the flocks in Shechem, which is about 50 miles away from their home, about 50 miles away from Hebron. And and his father sends Joseph to check on his brothers. Now, we don't know exactly the reason why. Maybe maybe this is a, a, a father's worry. 
You know, two of these sons had murdered a lot of people in Shechem, if you remember that in Genesis. Maybe he's worried about his sons. Maybe this is about mistrust. He doesn't trust his sons. Joseph has already come to them once. We learned last week. Joseph came once and brought back a bad report about these brothers. Maybe he doesn't trust them. So he's sending Joseph to go check on them and bring back a report. And so Joseph arrives in Shechem. We see that in verse 12 through 17. He arrives in Shechem, maybe a five-day journey or so. He arrives, and he can't find them anywhere. Where are they? Where's his brothers? And just so happened, just so happened under God's providential hand, a man shows up. Just calls him a man, doesn't tell us who he is, but a man shows up. He says, what are you looking for? He says, I'm looking for my brothers. They're supposed to be here doing this. He said, well, I overheard them talking. And they actually went to Dothan. So that's 12 more miles away from his home. He said they went to Dothan. And so Joseph goes to find his brothers there in Dothan. Now, verse 18 through 24, we see Joseph, he goes to Dothan. He arrives in Dothan to find his brothers. And in verses 18 through 24, we see Joseph betrayed by his brothers. He's betrayed by his brothers. Now it says here in the very first verse that the brothers see Joseph coming from afar. How'd they notice him? Maybe it was the way he walked. Maybe it was that coat of many colors. We don't know. But they noticed him from afar. They saw that he was coming. And what did they begin to do? They began to, to plot a murder. A murder plot began in their hearts and amongst themselves. Listen to the plot to murder Joseph in verse 19. They said to one another... Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say to that, we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Now I want you to think about that for just a minute. That murder plot is a plot to kill Joseph. It's a plot to dispose of his body into a pit. And then there's a cover-up plan. That we're going we're gonna to say that he was devoured by an animal. So here's this plot to murder Joseph. Now I want you to notice in, that, in what we just read in verse 19 and 20. Notice their focus on Joseph's dreams. Remember those dreams where God spoke to Joseph? Notice their focus on his dreams. It says at the very beginning, here comes this dreamer. Literally means the Lord of the dreams. Here comes the Lord of the dreams. And then at the end of the murder plot, what do they say? Look at the very end. They said, then we will see what will become of his dreams. Here comes this dreamer. We're going to kill him. And then we'll see. Then we'll see what will become of his dreams. I want you to think about that for just a minute. These dreams are God's word. That this man, Joseph, is going to rule and reign on a massive scale. And, and they know about that and they hate it. They, they despise it. They don't want this man ruling over them. And so they say, let's kill this man and let's see what will happen to his dreams then. Now, doesn't that, that sort of sarcasm, that sort of word, doesn't that remind you of Jesus? What Jesus claimed to be. Jesus claimed to be the Christ. And everyone knew that the Christ was that king that would rule over a massive scale. They knew that. And he claimed to be that Christ. And this made people angry. 
And a murder plot arose to kill Jesus Christ. And there he is hanging on the cross. And what do they say? If you're really the Christ, come down from that cross. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens about this dreamer's dreams. We'll see what will happen with his dreams. Now as we keep reading in verse 18 through 24, we see Reuben come to the rescue here. He has a plan to rescue him. He says, look, don't shed his blood. Don't kill him. Just throw him into a pit. And the idea is just let him die there. Let him die in the pit so that we don't shed his blood. But he has a plan. Reuben, we find out in verse 21 that he has a plan that what he's actually going to do, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So he has a plan to restore him to his father. Now, in a sense, this is a noble plan. This man wants to rescue his brother. He wants to rescue Joseph. In fact, you think about Joseph's position. He has no idea that Reuben actually desires to rescue him. He doesn't know that. But Joseph finds out about it later and it makes him weep. I want to read this to you in Genesis chapter 42. Listen to verse 22 through 24. It says this. This is later on when Reuben and his brothers are before Joseph. And Joseph, they don't know Joseph understands their language. And he's hearing everything they're saying. And Reuben says this in verse 22. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them. For there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. So this is a noble plan. This is a plan that makes Joseph weep when he learns about it. So it's a noble thing. But at the same time, I want to encourage you not to overly commend this plan. Because as the story goes on, Reuben shows himself to be selfish. When he finds out that Joseph is gone, that he's been sold away, he points to himself. What will happen with me now? Where shall I go? He shows himself to be cowardly, that when he, would, he should have gone and told these things to his father and made a wrong right, yet he doesn't do it. For years on end, he stays silent about what they did to his brother. So it shouldn't be overly commended. Now, you got these plots in place, this plot to kill Joseph. There it is. And Reuben's plot to rescue him. And then what we see in verse 23 through 24 it shows of Joseph being attacked by his brothers. Let's read it. Look at verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of, the, of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water. So what do they do to him? They violently strip him of that robe that his dad had given him. They violently strip it off, to him, off of him. They humiliate him. They throw him naked into a pit. And what does it represent as they rip this off of him? That robe of many colors represented that this boy, though he was not the firstborn, was being given the right of the firstborn. So they strip it off. These brothers say, this one will not rule over us. This one will not lead us. Now we'll see what will happen to his dreams these words he got from God that he would rule. And so they strip it off of him. And they throw him into a pit and they leave him for dead. Can you imagine that moment? Don't be desensitized to this. Can you imagine 
that moment. Now, verse 25 through 36, what we see here is Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. Very first verse, it says, Then they sat down to eat. Can you imagine that for a minute? Then they sat down to eat. They sat down for a meal. Everything that just happened, stripping his brother, his brother screaming, terrified, whatever's happening, throw him naked into a pit. Now, let's go get something to eat. It says here they sit down to eat. This is cruel. It's heartless. It's dark. Can you imagine how callous these men have to be just to sit down and eat? Now, there's some added details again in Genesis 42. I'm going to read verse 21. It gives us a little added detail of what was happening whenever they're sitting down for their meal. Verse 21 says, Then they said to one another, this is the brothers of Joseph, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. Can you see Joseph there in the pit while they're eating their meal? And he's begging them. Please don't do this. Please get me out of here. Can you see the picture in your mind? Kent Hughes, I thought, visualized this well. He said it like this. The brothers acted as if they did not hear during their dreadful communion, the meal they were eating. But Joseph's ghostly wails and moans as he pled with each by name, Simeon! Levi, Dan, Zebulun, get me out of here. Had relentlessly echoed in their souls over the years. Now, there's an amazing reversal that's going to happen in Genesis, you know. Right here, Joseph is, uh, Joseph's brothers are eating in front of him. Well, the next time, there's another time coming where Joseph's brothers are going to eat in front of him. And this time, Joseph is their captive. But next time, he's going to be their king. These amazing reversals are about to happen as Joseph goes through humiliation into exaltation. Now, while they're eating this passage, verses 25 through 36, it tells us that Judah Judah comes up with a more profitable plan. Look, if we just kill him, he just dies, we get nothing. But if we sell him, If we sell him into slavery, then we get paid. So Judah comes up with this plan. His brothers listen. And lo and behold, here comes Ishmaelite traders. Here comes these men that he can sell Joseph into slavery and they will take him into Egypt. Look at verse 28. It says, Then the Midianite traders passed by and they drew Try to imagine this. They drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Can you imagine that? This man has been devalued. 20 shekels of silver for his life. Joseph has been dehumanized. Can you put yourself in the shoes of this teenager that's just been sold into slavery? He's just been beaten by his brothers. 
stripped of his clothing and sold as a slave to these Ishmaelites. Can you imagine that? Can you, can you, can you hear his screams? Can you feel his pain? Again, there's another verse in Scripture that gives us a little bit of insight into what happened in that moment. Let me read to you Psalm. You don't have to flip there, but Psalm 105. Speaking specifically about Joseph, it says this. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Can you see that picture? It hurts. And he sold him to slavery. He's got a collar of iron around his neck. Try to imagine the horror of what's just happened to this man. Now, why didn't Reuben intervene? I thought he wanted to rescue. Why didn't Reuben intervene? And verse 29 and 30 tells us that Reuben actually wasn't there at that moment. Whenever the slave traders came, he wasn't there. But when he came back, he tears his clothes and he weeps and he says, but what about me? Where shall I go now? And this is where they make that plan, that cover-up plan. And so they slaughter a goat and they dip Joseph's coat of many colors into that blood. And they send it back to their father and they say, very deceptively, does this coat belong to your beloved son? Does it belong to your son? To which Jacob says, yes, it does. And he begins to put two and two together that an animal has torn to pieces his son and he weeps and he grieves over this. And his sons and daughters try to comfort him in his grief, but he refuses to be comforted. And then verse 38 says this, last verse. Meanwhile, so we got this picture of what's going on in Hebron with Jacob mourning. Verse 38, meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. What do you think about that for a minute? This man's been humiliated. He's been treated like an animal, sold like, just sold like an animal. Can you imagine him being in, in Egypt and imagine him walking up that auction block where he's going to be sold? Imagine the thoughts running through his head in those moments. This is Joseph's at the beginning of Joseph's humiliation. So in summary, this is a sad, heart-wrenching, horrific story to read. It's full of jealousy Murder, human trafficking, slavery, deceit, betrayal, fear, distress. It seems hopeless, but is it hopeless? You read this and it seems so hopeless, but is it hopeless? Now there's two phrases that remind us that, there, that there's hope. That in the midst of his distress, it's not hopeless. And those two phrases are this. One... It's found in verse 20, last part of verse 20. Remember what they said about his dreams? Now we'll see what happens to this man's dreams. <laughs> Do you hear the glimmer of hope in that? That little reminder that God Almighty had said to this man, God had said to this man that you're going to rule, you're going to reign, that the sun, moon, and stars are going to bow down to you. And there's this little glimmer of hope. Is God going to be true to his word? And then the other word, the other word that reminds us of hope is in the very last verse. See where it says, meanwhile, I love that. 
You consider the context before it. What's happening? Well, we've got the story where Jacob's mourning in Hebron. And then what's the context after? Genesis 38, it's a story about Judah's sin. And so what is this verse? Right in the middle of it, verse 38, what does it say? Meanwhile, there he is. Don't forget about Joseph. The story's not over. The story hadn't ended. There's hope to be found. Now that's the plain sense of our passage. I want us to go, I want us to go into a second heading here, which is this. The mysterious ways of God. The mysterious ways of God. Now I'm taking that phrase, the mysterious ways of God, I'm taking that from two places. One is Isaiah chapter 55 verse 8 and 9, where it says that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are His ways and thoughts above, far above our ways and thoughts. His ways can at times seem mysterious to us. Now, I'm also taking that from a hymn. There's an old hymn that's called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Now, consider the fourth line of that hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And it's got this, it's this idea that something terrible has happened. Something that seems like catastrophe has happened. And listen to this, listen to this hymn. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. But trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Behind a frowning providence, and Joseph sure got one of those. God hides a smiling face. So I want you to consider the mysterious ways of God in Joseph's life. Think about it. In Genesis 37, he gets this glorious promise from God that he's going to rule, that he's going to reign. And then next thing you know, what happens? He's a slave in Egypt. He gets a promise that you're going to be at the highest place from God. Next place, God takes him to the lowest place. This is the mysterious, mysterious ways of God. And not only would he be sold into slavery, but he would also go on to be framed for a crime that he didn't commit. He'd sit and rot in a dungeon. He'd be forgotten there. This would go on for 13 years. How old were you 13 years ago? Can you imagine from then until now? 13 years of slavery with a promise in the background that you're going to rule and reign. And God works in mysterious ways. He works in mysterious ways. And so can you imagine... Joseph's initial thoughts as he's getting, he's getting that iron around his neck and those fetters that are hurting his ankles. Can you imagine his thought in that moment? God, but you said. God, I thought you said I, thought you said I would rule. I thought you said I would reign, Lord. Can you imagine in, in that moment? Can you imagine the thoughts in his mind over the next 13 years? Did he have times where he trusted God's promise? Where he remembered Abraham? who also was given a promise and waited for over 20 years? Did he have times of doubt where he's forgotten in that dungeon thinking, man, what in the world? This is not what God, it's not what I thought God said. Can you imagine that? 
Now, here's what we need to come to grips with this, that God does this sort of thing. God moves in mysterious ways. And by that, I mean frowning providences, things that you, you would not have done it that way. His ways are higher than your ways. God moves like this. He brings suffering and catastrophe, but it all has a purpose. God moves in this way. Now, listen, does that scare you? Just knowing that, does that scare you? I don't want you to be scared. I want you to be comforted by the goodness of God. That no matter what he takes you through, he means it for a purpose. And he is good and he's with you and he's all you need right in that moment. Listen to this. Another little detail. These details are all over the Bible. Acts chapter 7. As Stephen is talking about Joseph's life, he says this in Acts chapter 7 verse 9. He says... And, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Listen to these beautiful words, though. But God was with him. Sold him into Egypt. This is not what God had planned, is it? It says here, but God was with him. God was with him. Now, Why? Why does God move in these kind of mysterious ways, ways that we wouldn't expect? Now, I, I, would not even, I wouldn't dare to lay out everything or, try, or attempt to lay out everything. This is why God does everything the way he does it. I don't know. But I know we can get some insight from a certain passage in Psalm 105. I want you to flip with me to Psalm 105. Why does God move like this? Why does God bring about hard things like this, for example, in Joseph's life? Go to Psalm 105. We're going to read verse 16 through 19. Verse 16. And when he, that he is God, when he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. Now, what do we see here? We see here in verse 16, the sovereign God who controls the famine. Isn't that interesting that God sent? It says here, God sent a man. God sent Joseph to rescue his brothers from the famine. But let's go deeper. God gave the famine. God, get, God summoned the famine. He's in control. He's sovereign God in control of the famine. Then you get to verse 17 and 18. It says that God sent Joseph as the Savior. God sent Joseph as the Savior to save his people from God's own famine. Now, how did God send him? Look at the next line. God sent a man, and the next line says, how did God send him? Sold him as a slave. Isn't that mysterious? God, isn't there some other way you could have got him to the right hand of the king of Egypt? Isn't there another way you could have got him there? But instead, I'm going to send you to rule and reign. Next step to get there, sold as a slave. Betrayed by your brothers. Our God moves in mysterious ways. Why, Lord? Why do you do it, Lord? Well, here's one reason. Verse 19 gives us one reason. Until what he had said, until what God had said came to pass, the word 
of the Lord tested him. Do you understand that? God was testing him. What does that look like? God said this, but it doesn't look like it's being fulfilled. God said this, but it doesn't seem like it's so. You're being tested. In that moment, you're being tested. Will you believe his word? Will you trust him or will you not? Now, you got to understand, this testing is not, it's not that God doesn't know. It's not the kind of testing like God says, hey, I don't know where Joseph is. I don't know if Joseph is going to trust me or not. So let me put a test out there just so I can see. It's not that. The book of Proverbs speaks about testing like a piece of silver is tested in the fire. That the silver is taken and put into the fire and all the impurities and all the dross is burned off of it so it comes out a shining, beautiful piece of silver. It's testing like that. It's for your good. It's for your sanctification. It's for your purification that God sanctifies His people. And here's one way that He sanctifies and tests His people. He gives words. He gives the truth. He gives His word. And yet you look at life and you go, man, this doesn't seem like the fulfillment of God's word. You're being tested. Will you trust his word? Will you let the dross be burnt off? And so Genesis 37, verse 12 through 36, it's the beginning of Joseph's humility, or excuse me, his his humiliation. And at the same time, the beginning of his testing. His humiliation is at the same time the beginning of his testing. Now, brothers and sisters, we are not Joseph. <laughs> we, we, we resemble much more so the brothers in this passage. We're not Joseph. But here's the reality. If you want to follow Christ, you will be tested. If you want to cling to his word, you will most certainly be tested. Are you ready for that? Do you see yourself in that way that you take up the word of God and you read and God reveals a promise to you? Listen to me. The way to get there might not be like you think. His ways are higher than your ways. You might be tested by what you just saw. Don't be scared of that. Be comforted by the God who will be with you. You will be tested on what you see in God's word. Now, an anchor to the soul should be He does it because you're his child and he loves you. That should be an anchor to your soul in testing and in humiliation. Now, third heading um, for this passage would be this. Foreshadowing the humiliation of Christ. So Joseph's life, as we talked about earlier, is foreshadowing. If you understand that word, foreshadowing, imagine you... Somebody's coming around the corner, and you, you don't see them yet, but you see the shadow. And you know somebody's coming, and then he comes around the corner, and now you've got what the shadow pointed to. But there's things like that in God's Word that foreshadow who Christ is and what he, what he has done. So Joseph's humiliation is a foreshadowing of Christ's humiliation. I just want to mention seven quick ways that we see that. Seven ways that we see Joseph's Humiliation, foreshadowing Christ's humiliation. Number one is this. Joseph was sent into his humiliation by his father, and he willingly obeyed. You remember that in our passage? His father sent him there to his brothers who hated him, 
And Joseph willingly obeyed. Well, even so with Jesus Christ. Even so with him. John 3, 16 and 17. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He sent not his son in the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Jesus was sent by his father and Jesus willingly obeyed. Now here's the difference. Joseph did it in ignorance. Joseph did it not knowing that he was entering into humiliation. Jesus knew full well when he came to this earth. When he went to that cross, when he's traveling towards Jerusalem, he knows full well what he's about to face, and yet he does it anyways. I love this verse in John 18. It shows us that. Jesus' willing obedience, knowing full well the suffering he would endure. John chapter 18, verse 3. So Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, listen to this, knowing all that would happen to him. Now if that was Ryan, then Ryan, knowing all that would happen to him, the next, verse, the next part of the verse would say, he ran. He got out of there. But listen to what it says for Christ. He came forward. Knowing all that would happen to him, he came forward. He moves towards his executioners, knowing full well the wrath of God about to be poured out on him. He was obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Number two, Joseph was rejected by his brethren. Joseph was rejected by his brethren. Even so with Christ. John chapter 1 verse 11 says, He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. You know how humiliating that is. He came to his own, and his own didn't even receive him. Jesus didn't die with followers all over planet earth. That's not how he died. He died with even his closest followers denouncing him. Even his own family thinking he's crazy. The humiliation of Christ. Number three, Joseph was violently stripped of his robe. Now, as we said, there's a physical humiliation as he's thrown naked into a pit and and driven off to slavery. And then there's a symbolic humiliation that this robe represents you you have firstborn status. They rip it off and they say, no, you don't. Now, even so, even so with Christ. Think about Christ's physical humiliation. His robes are ripped off him. Matthew chapter 27. I want to read to you verse 30 and 31. And they spit on him. And took, and, and they spit on him. They mocked him, saying, excuse me, they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Verse 31. And when they had mocked him, Like Joseph, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And then when they get him there to crucify him, remember, they're dividing his garments among them by casting lots. They hang him naked upon a tree. Physical humiliation. But not only that, symbolic humiliation. When they're dressing him up like a king and putting a crown of thorns over his head, And they're saying, hell, king of the Jews. And then they strip it off of him. What are they saying? What are they saying in that moment? 
You're a fake king. You're no king at all. You don't reign over us. Violently stripped of his robe. Number four, Joseph was given over by his brethren into the hands of pagans. Did you catch that? Joseph was in the pit, but given over to pagans. Even so with Jesus. Matthew 27, verse 1 and 2 says that they took him to Pontius Pilate, a pagan governor. And that they gave him over to Roman soldiers, pagan soldiers, to beat and torment and crucify him. His brethren, Jesus' brethren, gave him over to pagans. Number five, Joseph cried out for deliverance from his humiliation. He cried out for deliverance from his humiliation. In a similar way, can you see Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane? That there he is. He's about to face, he's about to face the wrath of Almighty God. He's about to face torture like no man has ever faced before. And he's crying now, God, if there's any other way, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. And yet he's willing, because he says, yet not my will, but your will be done. Number six, Joseph was sold as a slave. Joseph was sold as a slave, even so with Christ. Matthew chapter 26, verse 14 and 15. It says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, the price of a common slave. Sold over to pagans to be killed. And last one, number seven. Now, lend me your ear. I find this one, I see glory in it. I see glory in it in my own heart. But I have trouble explaining the glory that's here. So give me your ear. Lean in. Number seven is this. God, in His sovereignty, God used the sinner's sin... To send the sinner's Savior and save the sinner's soul. Think about that for a minute. God used the sinner's sin to send their Savior and to save and to save their soul. Now I want you to think about that for just a minute. God sent Joseph to become ruler in Egypt to do what? To save his brothers. We see that in Genesis 45. We see in Genesis 50 that he was sent there to be exalted to save his brothers. God, how are you going to send them there? Through the very evil and sinfulness of those brothers, I'm going to send them there. Remember our verse in Psalm 105? It's Psalm 105, it says that, that uh, I sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold into slavery. I'm going to send a man to save those brothers. How are you going to send them? I'm going to use the sin. God is so sovereign. I'm going to use the sin of these very ones that he's going to save in order to send them there. In Genesis 45, I believe it's verse 5, it says something similar. Joseph says this, God sent me here to preserve life. Now you imagine Joseph saying that to his brothers. He did. He said to his brothers, brothers, God sent me here. You imagine his brothers thinking, what? No, no, no. You know, inside their mind. No, we sent him there. We sold him into slavery. And Joseph says, no, God sent me here. 
God sent me here. How did you send me here to save these lives? How? Through the sin of the very ones he's going to save. Genesis chapter 50 verse 20. uh, Joseph says this to his brothers. Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. To bring it about this day to save many souls alive. That what's meant for evil amongst sinners and Satan, God takes even that in his sovereignty and turns it for glory. And that happened in Joseph's life. And I would just say, again, even so with Christ. How sinful. How sinful that they killed him. Can you imagine that? The perfect, spotless son of God that even Pontius Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. And they kill him because of their own jealousy. They killed him. And yet God takes that very death of those sinful, evil humans killing the God-man. And he makes that the point at which he will save humanity. At which he will save those who would come to him. Now imagine a little time later in Acts chapter 2. Now this happened a lot. In Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching the gospel. And he points at those people and says, Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. He puts a finger on them. This happens more than once. He said, you crucified him. Listen, many souls that heard the gospel that day were saved. And how were they saved? They were saved by the death of the very one that they killed. What, What a sovereign God. To bring about salvation even through the sinful actions of men. Now the only thing that we ought to do when we hear stuff like that. When we see God uh, setting up his Christ and foreshadowing his Christ. We see who Jesus is and what he's done. The only thing that we ought to do is to worship King Jesus. He's holy. Do you understand that? That he's holy. If that word holy means that he's set apart, the one we're talking about right now, he is set apart. He's not like us. He's in a category all by himself. All over the Psalms it says, there's none like you, O Lord. Why? Because he's holy, holy, holy. And so let's do that now. Let's take what we see about Christ, what's been foreshadowed for us, and what we get to look at as we read through the Gospels and the rest of God's word, Let's worship Christ as the holy, holy, holy one as we sing here in just a moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and for your sovereign control. Thank you for these things in the life of Joseph, God, where you tested him. As you brought him through this humiliation. And God, I pray that you would give us hearts to be ready for testing. To be ready to be taken low. Knowing that you gave promises of eternal life with you. And glory that far exceeds all suffering on this earth. Prepare our hearts for that Lord. And Lord thank you so much that in your goodness Lord. You're giving us pictures and visuals of our Savior Christ in the very beginning. God, I pray that right now you would help us to worship as we call out that you are the Holy One. You're the Holy One. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.